Coming up, Story Living by Disney represents a walled garden approach that Disney is taking, but other attractions are tearing walls down by encouraging guests to come in for their seasonal offerings. All that and more on this episode of Green Tagged Theme Park in 30. Green Tagged is our weekly show covering the top theme park news from each week. Again, for haunt-only shows, check back tomorrow. All right, enjoy the show. From our studios in San Diego and Tampa, Florida, this is Green Tag Theme Park in 30. I'm Philip, and I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Swenson of Scott Swenson Creative Development. Hello. How are we all doing? Good. <laughs> We're punchy already, and the show has just started. This could this could be a big problem. This could be a big problem. Um, actually, this is kind of a, uh, a carryover from last week's show, but before we dive into that, um, I, there, is, there is some news I think we need to talk about. You know, we spent a lot of time um, on this show talking about mask mandates and where they are and how they're doing. And uh, that's changing in in, uh, in California. Um, and so, for example, California lifted, lifted masks indoors in L.A. County. Um, Universal Studios Hollywood are, is now saying no masks outdoors, but it's still requiring them indoors. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Disneyland and Walt Disney World here in Florida are saying no masks except for transportation. <laughs> so... Um, it's, it, yeah, it's sort of like, you know, the airport, I guess. I don't know. But, uh, so the idea here apparently is we are finding what we've hoped for all along. We are finding new ways to not hide from, but rather deal with the pandemic and keep things moving forward. Uh, I, I you know, I, I've always said I'm going to select a, a, an expert source and follow it through. And, um, you know, it, for me, that was the CDC. And the CDC has, you know, continued to update and uh, reevaluate and make new and different recommendations. So I'm going to follow them and and uh, and hope that it's all right. You know, I I think that where the focus has been now, um, and I think appropriately so, is on making certain that everybody uh, is vaccinated who can be and and uh, as well as boosted. So if for some reason they do come down with any of the variants. Um, they're they're less likely to to get sick, which I think is exactly the right way to do. I, I think we've kind of overcome um, a lot of the challenges, uh, but for those people who do still choose to wear masks because they are either immunocompromised or um, there are concerns about either them spreading it or it being spread to them, um, there was a report that came out that said uh, if you are able to wear either N95 or KN95 masks, um, that you really are roughly about 80% protected. So, and the reason it's not 95 is because obviously not all of us have been fit tested. Some of us have facial hair, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, so if you still have concerns or uh, have uh, legitimate health issues and would like to continue to wear masks, the N95 and the KN95 masks are the way to go. Um, and I just want everybody to recognize that just because they're not required does not mean anyone's going to chastise you or should be chastising you. Let me rephrase that. Should be chastising you for wearing them if you choose to. So yeah. I, I, I just think it's important to put that out there because mask wearing has been such a regional thing. And mm -hmm. uh, I just got back from Tennessee and I didn't see a single mask except in the airport. Um, mm -hmm. I've also been to Philly not too long ago and Indianapolis not too long ago. Indy's somewhere in the middle. Philly is is masked um, everywhere. So different people are, different areas are handling it differently. And, uh, and I think that's fine. I just think we need to make sure that we continue to move forward as to how to live with this situation, as opposed to thinking it's all just going to magically go away. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, 
and, and the location, I think to underscore what we've been talking about this entire time, like uh, everything has changed and nothing has changed as well in that the locations are still handling it differently. And that means that attractions in different areas have different guidelines. You know, even in this example, California said they are, you know, re releasing, they're, they're taking off the required indoor masking, but you know, LA has decided they're still going to keep it for about a month. And that means that Disneyland can get rid of masks, which they did, but it means that you know, Universal can't because they're still in LA County. So it's even down to like the, you know, like the, the, they're not that far apart, you know, the, these, these two parts right. and there's right. the different rules. And, you know, to Scott's point about elective wearing, I like to wear my mask at the gym, but that's mainly because I make weird faces when I'm lifting and I don't want people to see my faces that I'm making, but I get like mad shade thrown at me and I'm just like, you know, it's just so funny and, and puzzling, but yeah, it's really just for me. Cause I don't want people to see the faces. I am just like, like the pushing, like, and it's like, like who wants to look at that? Yeah, Nobody. Put, put, put a mask on now, Philip. Don't ever put that face on the show again. That's that's really scary. Um, no, well, and and for me, I spend so much time traveling to climates that are colder that uh, mask wearing is something that I'm going to do anyway, whether it's an N95 or whether it's a scarf around my face, because you know this Chicago boy has been living in Florida too long, and so when when I go to to Indianapolis or to Canada or wherever, I, it's especially well in the winter it's it's cold. So I want my face covered. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It doesn't bother me at all. So again, I, I think that uh, we need to continue to, to do what is right for us. And again, we've been saying that from the very beginning. Um, follow the follow your heart, follow your your own personal experience and uh, stay safe. Okay. Well, you know, Disney would prefer that people follow their hearts to spend more time with Disney. And that's kind of what we talked about last time. <laughs> Which, which was the the idea of uh, this concept of building up walls higher. And last week on the show, we talked about how the Disney was trying to increase the spend per person, essentially, and they were successful at doing that. And how that's really just building up uh, barriers to entry, essentially, which is the wall concept for uh, their properties. And we kind of tied together the uh, Chapex vision in his memo and uh, Bob Iyer's Bob Iyer's exit interview. They talked about the strategy of building up IPs and trying to kind of uh, go up against uh, the metaverse and all these forces that are coming in. So this week we thought we'd give start off with giving a little bit examples on other types of walled experiences, some of them <laughs> physical walls uh, that, that people are building to try and case this in. And then we'll talk a little bit about what smaller attractions that really don't have the IPs uh, at, that are as strong, what they can do to uh, kind of tear those walls down and bring in more guests. So kind of like the opposite strategy of what uh, Disney has been doing. So our first example of physical walls is, of course, I think the biggest news from this week, which is a story living by Disney. Yikes. Uh, so story living by Disney. The Disney touch is at the heart of it all. <laughs> sorry. I, I didn't... I, couldn't get through that with a straight face. I tried. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm going to, I'm determined to read through this with a straight face. Okay. Okay. This is okay, serious. Okay. Here we go. This is serious stuff. Okay. He's serious now. I, I'm serious. I'm serious, Philip. At each location, including some neighborhoods for residents ages 55 and older, Disney cast members trained in the company's guest service will operate the community association. Through a club membership, Disney will also provide access to curated experiences such as wellness programming, entertainment ranging from live performances to cooking classes, philanthropic endeavors, seminars, and much more. 
Dizzy Imagineers will play a key role in developing the creative concept for the communities working in conjunction with respected developers by home builders. Well, when I first read this, the first thing I thought of was it's about time from the folks living in celebration to retire and they need some place to go. So uh, this seems to be the next logical step. Uh, Maybe I'm a little cynical. I don't know. I love theme parks. I work in theme parks. I love Disney. I love Disney, the Disney experience. I I grew up with it. Um, But I will say I wouldn't want, I personally wouldn't want to live there. Um, And I think the other thing that we have to recognize, if I'm not mistaken, Philip, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, this is this is not all Disney. This is they're working with some rather significant partners who are actually um, either co-owners or actual owners of of these these experiences and, and experiences and environments. Is that true? Um, so I think that the the details have not been one hundred percent released yet. But from what I understand, the way it's working is there are builders. And those builders are the ones that own the property, just right. as as a regular HOA, any sort of builder that's building a master planned community. So those are there's going to be homeowners, and there's going to be the master planners, the builders, and the HOAs, and all that as normal. That's all normal. But the difference here, from my understanding, is Disney is kind of like consulting on how the master plan will actually work there. So they're sitting down with the architects, basically, and being like, you know, it'd be great if you worked in a hidden Mickey into this wrought iron fence. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, Here we are with, with Epcot uh, community consulting. Yes. And, yes. Uh, so no, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I, I think it is. I think it's, I think it's well, interesting. What I think is, is actually brilliant here is the second part of it, which is the piece I read about how it seems to me like essentially the, your HOA fees are going to go towards Disney cast members who are going to be placed like real Disney cast members that are going to be stationed in the community rooms. And they are going to bring curated kind of Disney-esque experiences to, to, to plan out in your area. So I can't imagine what the HOA fees are going to be, but I imagine they're going to be pretty large. And then you're going to get that Disney touch, i.e. the cast members that are there. So again, it, it speaks almost directly to what we talked about last week, because it is like Disney looking for more of your attention, right? It's, it's, it's also the walled garden experience. Like, you know, these are going to be expensive. Just like look at Golden Oaks, right? Like Golden Oaks, millions of dollars for the same concept, you know, right. and, and to Scott's and celebration was expensive too. You know, I think it's important to recognize that Disney's not the first to do this by any stretch of the imagination. Um, yeah. Here in Florida, you know, there's uh, there's a senior citizen community and it is gigantic called the Villages. Um, there's also another one, um, you know, Sun City uh, here in Florida, and they're all right. I mean, those are these are all just within spitting distance of Tampa. Um, and, uh, you know, like, for example, the Villages has multiple entertainment um, facilities, you know, full um, performance and production locations. They have uh, golf courses. They have swimming pools. They have and they're all just part of the, the living experience and the HOA fees go directly to that. It just doesn't have the Disney name on it. So this is nothing new. And I and I recognize that. Well, I, I, I push back time. I think the thing that is new is I've never seen them straight up say, you know, that they are going to say that members train Disney cast members are will operate the community association. Yeah, but but that's just saying that people who've gone through some sort of of some sort of guest interaction training, which I would venture to say 
knowing people who work at the villages, they've been through similar training, if not the same. But then the second sentence, Disney will also provide, like Disney will provide access to curated experiences. Which is exactly what, which is exactly what the villages do. They hire, they hire artists they have a, each one of their performing arts centers has a, 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 an artistic director who curates what comes into each of their areas based on the guests, based on their needs, based on what's been successful. It's like these little tiny villages of, of mm. you know, and, and they bring in the same thing and they bring everything from uh, the, what I call the, they were once stadium tour acts, uh, but aren't anymore to, yeah. um, to cooking classes, to art classes, to uh, the past winners of of America's Got Talent, you know, um, it's it's all that kind of curated experience just for yeah. the owners. The only thing it doesn't have is the Disney name. So yeah. the concept I don't think is new. The fact that people are saying that it's Disney is, I mean, that the Disney training, Disney hospitality training is second to none. I, I agree with that. So I think that's really exciting. But to say that it's just because they're providing curated entertainment and um, that they are using cast members or staff members who have gone through hospitality training, that's not new. Well, that's not new. I, that's fine. I, I, I totally agree with that. I I think, I don't know. My biggest concern in this is I guess more, more, well, first of all, aside from the concern, I do think strategically it, it is smart because for the reason we talked about last time, we talked a little bit about they're hedging against IPs. And, and I brought up the concern last week that the, the biggest hole in their strategy of Disney Plus and the strategy of Walt Garden is, you know, they're they're losing access to people, um, to a more volume to, of people. And since Disney Plus, that's what they're betting on for the wide amount of people, you know, for the masses, that's the, the masses they're betting on Disney Plus because the parks are getting more constricted um, capacity wise. And, the issue with that is that they don't own the delivery mechanism of Disney Plus. So in that sense, this is smart because essentially they're they're bringing programming to communities where they own then, like there's, there's no one getting in the way. It's Disney and then it's the people at the communities and there's nobody that can, that can, that can get in the way. You know, there's nobody that can say that they're not going to allow the Disney Plus app on their phones, which, you know, Apple could do. I mean, there, there are ways in which people that own the rails essentially could interfere with Disney Plus, which is what makes it, um, a leaky strategy, but this allows them to directly influence the people at these communities without any barriers in between them. Now Again, the danger, yeah, that's what, that's why I asked who owns the properties. If you're, as you said, we believe we're not certain, but we believe that it is the home builders and the developers. So in theory, they could, I don't they see could, why yeah. they would, because again, the Disney that's affiliation the point, yeah. is why they're selling it. Um, but that, that option still is there, um, looking forward if for some reason there was a falling out or something, you know, ridiculous happened. Well, and I, my, my larger concern is also that I feel like this, this ultimately just creates more walled garden experiences in the more traditional sense, because, you know, we, we know that, that the best way to reduce division is to have diverse groups of people, diverse living situations, to have opportunities where you come into contact in in neutral community spaces with people that you normally wouldn't come into contact with. And I feel like all this is doing is the opposite. It is a curate, quote unquote, curated experience, i.e. means what Disney thinks is appropriate. And then it's a Disney freaking themed 
HOA. So like, who do you think is going to be able to afford and buy houses in this place? Like it's, it's like, they're just creating a, 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 like a, it's like, to me, I read this as we are creating a safe space where we can bring all the stuff that you want to you. And it's like, yeah, but how we, we build understanding and empathy is, is sometimes being uncomfortable. You know, it's having to go to the community pool and interacting with our neighbors that we normally would not have ever met in our regular day-to-day lives, except they live next to us. And so then we, we learn about them and we learn that they're, they're actually just humans, just like us too. You know, on 4th of July, they grill stuff just like we do. I, I agree with you 100%. I think we have to recognize that this is for people who would rather go to Epcot than Europe. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have been to Epcot where I have heard at least one person say, you know, it looks just like Europe, only it's better. It smells nicer. <laughs> so, you know, at that point, you kind of have to say, okay, you don't want you don't want the real experience. You want the replicated experience. And, uh, and, and that's fine. You know, I'm not being, I'm not being judgmental there at all. I, I, but I think that, I think that reinforces what your concern is, Philip. And that is that, you know, we're not going to go with what is, what is real, what requires us to interact with people that we may not necessarily understand or know anything about. We're going to take, uh, a curated view as to, you know, what that is. So like I said, Epcot versus Europe. Yeah. And who is doing that curation and, and the concept of who is doing that curation is, was actually mentioned by Iger when he, after he left Disney and it was, it was the one piece of the interview that we hadn't talked about yet. And he mentioned, so I'll, I'll read his quote, but he says, having spent almost 50 years on the creative side for our business, it became more and more clear to me that while data was already playing a very important role, that it should not be used to determine what stories are told. If we had tried to mine all the data that we had at the time to determine whether we should have made whether we should have made a superhero movie that was essentially about an Afrofuturistic world with a black cast, the data probably would have said, don't do that. There are a number of examples of that where someone's instinct or a group of people's instinct on whether a story is worthy of being told and is in the hands of people who will tell it really well. I don't think a machine or data, no matter how much technology enables, essentially input a massive amounts of information process. I don't think you get the right answers to that. Which sounds great on its head, but then you start to read into it and you ask questions of, hmm, maybe if your data set was more culturally balanced, the computer would give you more culturally balanced responses. And maybe when they say people's instinct, like it seems like essentially when I read into this, I'm hearing A, the data you gave it was the data from your park attendees, which are not very you know, become just like we like Scott said last time, they're choosing who they want to come to their parks. So ergo, they are deciding the data set and then plugging it into the computer and then blaming the computer for not bringing out diverse a diverse end set. Where well, it's starting from a from a not diverse point. And second, he's like essentially saying people's instincts didn't want to produce this type of thing. So they didn't think it would go well. That's what I'm hearing. And I'm like, and yet then in the next breath, you're like, we're going to curate the experience for these home uh, owners in the, as an HOA. And I'm like, <laughs> but you already admitted that your instincts are not to do diverse stories. So, right, but their but the, but their instinct did do a diverse story, and it was a, a, a significant hit. Um, I think what we I think what we have to, we have to take a half step back here. This is not Westworld. We're not going to plug things into the computer, and it's going to make decisions. The idea here is data is a tool. Period. It's not 
should you or shouldn't you. It's how do you use this information? How do you add the human element to this information so that you can use the data to either support or work against what your gut tells you? And data should be used to refine an idea, not to um, make the decisions for us. That's a, that's a, a sort of really creepy sort of George Orwell kind of moment there. I don't, I don't want computers doing the curation. I want people doing the curation. I think data is, data has to be recognized as it's an important tool. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard this back when I was working in the theme park is if you followed strictly the data, we would never have uh, in the automobile industry, we would, we would never have had minivans or electric cars um, or even hybrids. So yes. It's one of those, you've got to have those people, you've got to have those outliers, you've got to have those thinkers. And the question is, who are they? I think that's your real question, Philip. And that is, who are these people who are the gut instinct folks? And is that a diverse group? And you know what? If it's Correct. not, don't support their curation. Correct. That's Correct. the bottom Correct. line. Correct. Correct. It's, it's, it's not as though you have any right to say, Disney, here's the people you can hire and here's the people you can let into your park. You don't. You can't say that. What you can do is choose not to participate in that product if they are not being as diverse as you feel they need to be or what they are curating doesn't speak to you as an individual. Yeah. And I, that's a lot, but overall that that's my, my, my biggest concern with it is like who is doing the curation. That's exactly it. And I think it's a valid, and I think it's a valid concern. I think it is a valid concern, but you know, there are always going to be those, those experiences that are, um, designed for a very specific group. For example, um, let's let's leave Disney for a moment. Let's not use the D word for, for the rest of the show. Um, we'll stay away from Disney. We have uh, certain experiences that have been curated for very small audiences are things mm -hmm. like um, Lost, Lost Spirits Distillery's new themed restaurant serves, yes, this is correct, just one dozen people weekly. 12 people. Could you just imagine any restaurant you know, you talk yeah. about data. Let's use some data to, to try to define, uh, yes, we're going to create a restaurant that is only going to serve 12 clients each week. Yeah. I don't think there's a single, I don't think there's a single person in the, in the culinary arts industry who would say, oh, there's a good idea. But, but it is because it creates such a unique experience for those people. Yeah. Do you have problems yeah. with that? Well, I think this one I have less problems about because they're starting from the point of saying this is a 20,000 leagues under the sea restaurant. And so you've started off already walking into it knowing that like, um, it's just going to be about 20,000 leagues under the sea. So I suppose just like, um, I went to this Mary Shelley thing. So I suppose, Oh God, Scott, you asked me a terrible question. I feel like I just walked into a trap. The, um, remember when I, <laughs> when I went to that, uh, that Mary Shelley, like kind of like experience, well, I had studied Mary Shelley in graduate school and written like, you know, papers on it. And so I, so I was like, well, you're missing X, Y, Z, but everyone else loved it. Right. And so, and so <laughs> <laughs> having not done a thesis in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I would be fine with walking into 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and understanding though, that that's what this is about. And this was, that is the curation they're making is they're curating what they think is important for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, but where I would have the problem is if you are walking into a, like an Epcot, and they're like, we represent all the most important things uh, culturally, you know, in the world. And for all these different countries, this is what's important in these different countries. 
that's where I kind of am like, that's too, I don't see that like you are the experts in that, you know, but I don't mind when the, the lens is so narrow that it's just this one IP of 20,000 leagues. I'm like, that's fine. Like, I trust them. I trust Disney to accurately represent Ratatouille. No, we weren't going to say Disney in the anymore. Ratatouille, right? We weren't going to say Disney anymore. We're not going to talk about, you know, you're, 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 pulling, you're pulling the prank of that has nothing to do with this. That has nothing to do with this. So, yes, you did walk into a trap, and it just snapped around your foot. Um, anyway. This is part of Area 15 in Vegas. Uh, it is uh, $240 per person, which includes alcohol and, it's alcohol and drink tickets. So, um, it's, it's a wall. It is a, uh, a closed environment for high-end clientele. And yeah. again, if it's targeting the right high-end clientele, I think, I think that's great. Um, yeah, 16 course dinners and they do have entertainment as well. So it's like a whole evening event. And honestly, when I read this, the thing that jumped out to me was 240 a person. I feel like they could have doubled that. that. Yeah, it doesn't, no, it doesn't that high at all. I was like, especially in places, especially yeah, in like, Vegas. This is Vegas. This is Area 15, which means you get entry into the whole Area 15 immersive environment. You know, you, you need to have some sort of experience, a ticket or whatever, to get entry into that area. So you get entry into the whole area. Then you get to do this experience. There's a show included. There's alcohol included. There's 16 courses. And it's only $240. Like, I feel like it should have been double that. But maybe it will be. Maybe <laughs> you know, like next week we'll be like... They're listening. Oh, they listen to the show all the time, you know. And, and uh, <laughs> so they're, next week... Next week, it'll all be changed. Uh, um, so another way, I think another way that theme parks are trying to get more and more people and trying to be more and more open is something that is so very near and dear to both Phillips and my heart, and that is the seasonal entertainment industry. Um, finding ways, new ways to create seasonal um, seasonal events. And I, I think that, uh, you know, now is, of course, the world of Mardi Gras. Um, and I think, I don't, I can't think of too many theme parks that haven't ventured into this into this realm in some way or another. Um, obviously, Universal Studios, uh, both in Florida and in California, um, got in there, I would say, got in there first, as far as the major players. Um, and I know that uh, last year, Bush Gardens Tampa started uh, a small event and it brought it back this year. I actually attended that event. It was a lot of fun. SeaWorld San Diego is starting it for the first time. Um, and that will run, uh, well, is running February 5th through the 27th. Um, SeaWorld Orlando, Seven Seas Food, Seven Seas Food Festival is um, pretty much a staple um, now, yeah. and it's they do it they do it incredibly well, they do it very very well. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, Universal is taking a slightly different approach. Um, Universal Studios Japan, um, although I guess it's it's a cultural thing. I'm going to leave this up to you, Philip, to help define this a little bit in in terms of how it's different for the the culture versus yeah. the company. Well, I think to take a small step back, what I think is interesting is that Scott and I have talked, you know, our, our specialty, I guess, is like seasonal. And so we talk about Halloween, Christmas, and we talk about all that. And then we get to this uh, kind of void, which is Q1. <laughs> and what I find so interesting about Q1 is that kind of everybody's allowed to take their own spin based on the local community and what they think is best for the area. So you see Mardi Gras, you see St. Patrick's Day, you see Valentine's Day, mm -hmm. uh, but then in other cultures, you know, you'll you'll see Chinese New Year, which I we talked about as well. But then you'll see like in Japan, they don't. So Universal Studios in Japan is doing their cool Japan, and this is actually uh, a multi. This has been around for a while, and what it is is it's kind of like a, a partnership with local popular IPs, 
and they do kind of like a celebration of things that are cool in Japan. Like cool is in not like cold, but like cool is in like they're trendy. <laughs> like, and uh, just to clarify, I don't know. And so this year they're doing, it's running until August 28th, which is an ex- kind of like extended run. It's quite a long time. They're doing Sailor Moon. They're doing Attack on Titan. They're doing Hunter x Hunter. They're doing uh, Monster Hunter, the Iceborne XR walk. And they're doing Detective Conan. And this is, I don't know. This is a, a phenomenal example of a truly incredible seasonal event where they are partnering with IPs to create seasonal activations, and those IPs are the strongest in the area, and they're doing full storylines to match them. Like, this is not just a, we're going to stick stickers on something, to, just to be clear. There's story integration. It's like they're taking, a, a, like, a, a 3D theater, and they're creating a show for the 3D theater. It's that level of creation. And uh, it's wildly popular, and these IPs are wildly popular, and the team that works on them does a fantastic job. So, so is this? It, help me understand this, Philip. Is this sort of like? Is this sort of like IP pop up within yes. uh, within yeah. the within the Universal Studios? It's brilliant. Network? It's brilliant. I love it. Yeah, it's I so good. It. I mean, because yeah, you're right. These aren't stickers. These aren't. Let's throw a couple of stilt walkers in in costume out there. These are uh, you know 4D shows. These are um, rides. These are mm-hmm. uh, 4D theater experiences. These are XR walks. I mean, they're they're the uh, wow. There's the uh, this is all over the place. Is it possible that this is a way to test for future expansion? Is is it possible that that's how they're looking at this? Like, it, you know, it, installations. I'm not sure. They've done this for a while, and it doesn't seem to be leading to a permanent expansion. But I don't know if that's just because, on the other hand, maybe the IPs are kind of like, uh, you know, you don't know if permanent expansion with the getting the IP, if, if that's something that they agree to or not. But it is interesting that you mentioned like permanent expansion of that because over in Abu Dhabi, you know, they are introducing the Warner Brothers there is introducing the first ever Batman season, which features different Batman inspired activities and live shows. And that's running until March 31st to coincide with the release of the new Batman movie. And so that's kind of, you know, there where they're like, again, like you say, using their existing assets, they have a, a Gotham mm-hmm. area there, mm-hmm. but they're finding a way to like turn it into a season of fun by tying it into IP that is being released outside of the park. Well, and, and another perfect example of, of utilizing their assets is is uh, Bush Gardens Williamsburg. You know, they have mm-hmm. a whole Ireland section, and so they're doing a St. Patrick's Day uh, experience um, for for the month, uh, March 4th through the 27th, which, again, makes total sense, right on brand with them. Um, of course, Universal Orlando is bringing back Mardi Gras, like we said. Um, there's just, it's just, they're just popping up all over, and um, and of course, we have Sesame Place in San Diego opening, which I can't wait to see. I think that will be really fun. Um, we just had Peppa Pig open um, here in Florida. It, there's there's a whole bunch of neat stuff going on that doesn't involve the D word. Um, but that's kind of what's what's happening in the in the industry. What we feel is important, and certainly our opinions. Uh, sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. But that's the joy of this show. Um, this is a, a weekly look at the industry and what we think is important from a trend standpoint. So I hope you enjoy hearing us yammer on about all this stuff. Unfortunately, our time is up now. So uh, until next week, on behalf of my co-host, Philip Hernandez with Gantam Lighting and the Haunted Attraction Network, and myself, Scott Swenson with Scott Swenson Creative Development, we look forward to seeing you next week. And uh, who knows what we'll talk about then. So tune in and we'll see you then. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production.